Welcome to the very first episode of Tog and Log Podcast. So today's episode is going to get into film photography and getting your feet wet with film photography. So I think it's a perfect episode to start off with this topic about people wanting to get into film photography but not knowing where to start, where to go, where to buy your first camera, for example, what film should I get, and everything else afterwards or even before. So there's a lot of things I want to address in this episode, and there's going to be a lot of different topics, but without a doubt, I would like to try to cover everything that I can think of on top of my head as I talk about this topic today. So without a doubt, let's just dive right into it. And I think one of the first things that I would love to address right off the bat before we get into picking out cameras and the type of cameras and the type of film is really to get to understand that analog photography and digital photography are essentially two different mediums and a lot of people online love to compare the two. Now, I don't have any issues as far as comparing film photography and digital photography. I think it's a nice way to understand the differences and the similarities between the two mediums. But at the end of the day, there's some people that just love to say that digital is so much better than film or film is so much better than digital. And and there's this like war between which medium is better. But at the end of the day, they're two different mediums and they serve their purposes differently. And it has its looks rather differently. And each medium in itself can essentially save you or make you spend more money, more time, less time. It really depends on your creative freedom at the end of the day and what you want to execute as a creative or as a photographer. So keep that in mind that there's a lot of things out there as far as comparisons go with this medium. And I wouldn't be discouraged because there's a lot of factors when it comes to analog photography as far as getting the quote unquote perfect technical image. So there's a lot of factors that come into play as far as, you know, having the sharpest lens, for example, the sharpest film, and and then having the best developer, and then the best film scanner if you end up wanting to share it online. So there's a lot of those factors online, and I wouldn't want anyone who wants to get into film photography to be really, really discouraged as far as images not coming out very similar to digital. It's not that kind of comparison or that mindset that I would like to get people to get into. So without a doubt, you know, I wanted to really disclose that and talk about that first before we get into anything else because there's some films out there, for example, that are a little bit softer. You know, they're a lot, they're more grainy than other films. And there's other films even that may have more of a clinical look to it, but it has less grain and has a different tonality. So every camera, every lens and film and developer and scanner or printer in that matter creates a certain effect towards your final image. And as long as you're aware that all these different steps and processes can enhance or dehance your final image, that's more power to you and it gives you more control and more flexibility of what you can do as a creative. So the more knowledge you know about each of those little things that we can talk about today, the better you are as far as becoming a better photographer or having a better understanding of taking photos with analog film as its medium of choice. So if you are a current photographer or someone that has a good understanding of photography, film photography can be very familiar to you or it can be very, very foreign. So I've, I've seen both ends of the spectrum. And like I mentioned for this first episode, I just really want to dive into this and talk about different points that we can get into and kind of address certain things just to get your feet wet and to get things going rather quickly. 
where quickly and somewhat not safely, but at least a way where you can eliminate some failures. But I think that's actually another point that I would love to address before diving into photography and picking out cameras and films, because I love that process, is failures and being able to embrace failures through this process. So if you are getting into film photography or very, very curious about it, I would not be discouraged as far as making failures and knowing that you are bound to make any failures or multiple failures or multiple mistakes in your journey of film photography if you do end up continuing using film. I know some people like to try it once or twice to see if it's their thing. Other people, when they do try it, they fall in love in the process and they just want to know more about it. So, But without a doubt, that's one thing I just want to throw out there is that film photography can can be very rewarding. It can be also very frustrating at the same time, depending on how things roll. So that was one of the things I talked about in my episode zero is making sure that when you start with photography or any creative medium that I just always encourage to write down the processes and information and things that you experience along the way, as far as cameras, as far as like, where, where did you buy it? you know, as far as loading it, like paying attention to those minor details, because if there's those little things that you made a mistake about, at least you can go back and correct yourself and make sure that you don't make that mistake again, because film photography in itself, as far as I know, it can be very repetitive, but that repetition is something that you do need in order to keep your mind sharp as far as when you take images and as far as you developing and scanning, if you get to that extent of the creative process itself. So Without a doubt, let's jump into maybe the first point or the first question that I get often when people see my work and they just want to know more information about film photography and how can I get started. And that question is like, what camera should I get? What film should I pick? Where should I go from there? And all the other little small processes as well, too. So without a doubt, film actually has different types of formats and you want to pay attention to these formats itself so the most common format which is always related and is the staple for digital photography is full frame or for film it's 35 millimeter film format so that was the most common format back in the day that photographers use as the staple of making comparisons or knowing the size of your actual film itself prior to digital photography. So 35 millimeter cameras are usually the cameras that I always recommend to people who want to start off with photography because 35 millimeter film gets you at least the most exposures, the most frames that you can get out of a roll, which is typically a 24 or 36. It's more or less 36, but sometimes you do see 24 sh exposure shot films. And you do want to pay attention that there's a medium format and a large format. Medium format and large format are bigger format films, so they essentially give you a greater surface area of your film to be exposed and essentially gives you a higher resolution, more detail, more tonality, because when the film is actually bigger, it captures more of that information and you're essentially not having to enlarge your film in post or in your larger to get that resolution that you need. So essentially you get a better resolution, better tonality. But that's also a personal preference, which is something I'll get into a little bit later. But 
knowing your film formats is a good choice and a good thing to know. So 35 millimeter is what I typically recommend, but there is 120 format film, which is a medium format film. And then you have large format film, which is essentially sheet film. And the best way to put that on paper is basically the numbers that they use for the film is what is the size of the actual negative. So there is a four by five film which is essentially a four inch by five inch negative sheet of film. And then they have an eight by 10 sheet of film, which is eight inch by 10 inch. Now there's other larger formats, but they're very unique and it's becoming a little bit more rare to find. It's something that you can still get, but that's not something that I always encourage a person to start if they want to get into film photography. 35 millimeter film is more reliable in the sense of it's easier to get online or Somewhat in person, depending on where you're at location-wise, and getting 35mm cameras is a little bit more accessible instead of maybe like medium format or large format cameras. So the process as well too, if you end up doing it yourself, is a little bit easier. And most film labs today, the ones that you could find locally or in other states or countries can process 35mm format. Again, 35mm film is just very accessible it's really easy and it's the most common film to use so that's definitely the film that i always have people start off with so jumping into our next topic i would say that you know 35 millimeter film is the way to go at least to start off with to get your feet wet like i said you get 36 shots you know you have more flexibility as far as what you can shoot and you know it's a nice little format to start off with if you want to develop film on your own but if you want to find a camera People usually ask, what camera should I get if I want to go with 35 millimeter film cameras? And there's, I think, about four that I can think of on top of my mind that I can recommend that are very reliable. They were kind of like the staples of film photography when when people were uh, using it back in high school, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, even or even earlier than that. But I can say that, you know, if you want to start off with a nice, reliable camera, there's um, different brands, you know. All of them are still very reliable or they're all companies that we do know to this day. And that is Canon, you have Minolta, you have Olympus, you have Pentax, and you have Nikon. I mean, there's just so many different camera companies that still to this day produce cameras, which is amazing. Granted, they don't really produce film cameras. There's very far and few like Leica. And I think there's like one or two other companies. I don't know if Fuji actually makes cameras anymore, if I'm correct or not. But anyways, going back to it. There's four cameras that I would recommend, which is a Pentax K1000, you have a Canon AE-1, or a Canon A1 if you want something that's more manual settings than the Canon AE-1, which is like a semi-automatic camera. And then you have a Nikon FM2 and Olympus OM-1. I think those are like the good four or five cameras to start off with. So all those cameras there are SLR cameras. And they all pretty much serve or do very similar things. For the most part, you can control your aperture. You can control your shutter speed. You can control your ISO or ASA because that's how film is. It's ASA, not ISO. But we'll get into that in a second too. And you have other functions as well too that you can work that could be very similar to a DSLR camera or a mirrorless camera. But without a doubt, I would definitely, definitely, definitely research more because each camera does something a little bit different. On top of my mind, I can think that the Pentax K1000 is maybe a little bit more simplistic, but still gives you enough control to what you want to do. Um, most of these cameras as well too, again, I haven't looked it up, but you know, most of these cameras can be anywhere from like 100 to maybe $300 depending on 
the condition, if it includes a lens, and if everything is functioning properly. But going back to everything, you know, Pentax K1000, I think, was more of a simplistic camera. Still has all the function that you need to take your photos. Then you had the Canon AE1, which was a popular and stable camera back in its day. I think it was in the 80s and the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. And it had semi-automatic functions to it, which can help you um, take your photos in certain situations. And the brother, the older brother, if I recall, was the Canon A1, which was fully manual settings, but give you so much more control and freedom to what you want to do as far as taking photos. And that thing's built like a tank. And like I mentioned too, another camera that's built like a tank is the Nikon FM2. So Nikon FM2 was another staple for Nikon back in its heyday. It's still a very popular camera to this day for anyone that wants to shoot 35 millimeter that still wants to have the old aesthetics of, of taking photos. And as far as I remember with that camera too, I think it has a shutter speed up to one four thousandth of a second, which is actually pretty fast for an SLR camera. I would imagine if I recall that Canon AE1 in the in the A1, I think it was like 2000 or 1000 of a shutter speed. I could be wrong. I want to say it's 2000. I might be mixing it up with the Leica rangefinder cameras, which are typically 1000 of a second or even 500, depending on how old it is. But yeah, without a doubt, usually I, I suggest SLR cameras to anyone that's starting off with photography. But SLR cameras are not the only type of cameras that you can pick. I just mentioned right now that there's a Leica camera, which are actually range finder cameras. So maybe let's take a step back even further here. So SLR cameras are very similar to the DSLR cameras that we all know today, the digital SLR cameras. And before things were automatic, everything was manual. So you would have to focus through the lens and bouncing off through the mirror in order to get your image. And depending on the type of camera, they may have a split image screen which is essentially having a circle right in the center and it's split at a 45 degree angle. And in order to focus, you would have to turn your lens back and forth until you have the two splitting images inside of that circle aligned properly. And then getting into the rangefinder camera, which is typically Leica at this point. There's other ones out there too. I don't want to just discourage anything, but a lot of people just jump to Leica when it comes to rangefinder cameras. But that camera in itself is very unique. It's like I said, very popular, but a rangefinder camera are usually full. They are usually fully mechanical with the exception of some of them that are somewhat automatic or at least having a internal battery or light meter battery. But anyways, rangefinder cameras, they typically have two different windows and the way that it bounces, one window is for you to composite or to frame up your image. And the other one is an actual box for the light to come in. But that light that comes in bounces into your viewfinder and then you'll essentially see a square in the center of your viewfinder. And the crazy part is with this rangefinder type of cameras is a way to know that your image is in focus. There's actually a ghost image in that square and you want to line it up to a certain subject or a vertical plane or a line of some sorts and you want to make sure that your ghost image and then the image that you see in your viewfinder lines up correctly and once they lined up correctly you know that your image is in focus granted knowing that your camera is actually calibrated so that's another thing to talk about too but yeah those are rangefinder cameras they're essentially more mechanical they serve a different purpose as far as taking photos you know usually rangefinder cameras are more silenced than SLR cameras or point and shoot cameras but 
they serve a certain purpose and a lot of people do love rangefinder cameras but as a first camera i usually don't recommend that i usually go with an slr camera or i'll get into point and shoot cameras which is another type of camera which is basically the word that i just the phrase i just mentioned is point and shoot so basically the camera does most of the work for you so i usually recommend it to someone that lo would love to get into film but doesn't really have the background information of knowing how to take a photo using you know shutter speed aperture iso all those fun manual settings so a point and shoot camera like i mentioned it does do all the work for you internally. Granted, there's some out there that give you some creative freedom, but in most cases, point and shoot cameras, you basically point at something, you push the shutter halfway to make sure you're focused, and then you push it completely and it takes the photo and there you go. So point and shoot cameras are more of your fun cameras. They can give you some wacky images. They can give you some amazing images. So depending on how the camera interprets the the setting, the lighting, and the composition of things in your frame. It'll do all the work for you, and sometimes things can come out perfect. Sometimes it can come out too dark or too bright, but that's all in the process, the fun process of a point-and-shoot camera. Mostly back in the day, point-and-shoot cameras were something that people used when they were traveling or just taking simple pictures for just memory sakes, but without a doubt, people still use it in a professional world, and you know, it's just a fun camera to use, a fun format nonetheless. So I have one of those myself. It's not in the best of conditions, but I know that I can just go around and just slap in a 35 millimeter roll film and then just take some images. And I just know I can get some pretty good stuff on the fly without necessarily having to do all the work or sometimes worrying about an expensive camera or something that's rather big just to, you know, create those easy, very casual. That's just kind of the purpose of, of what point shoot cameras are so depending on how things go you know you can go with through the point and shoot route the rangefinder route or an slr camera route which in my case what i recommend an slr camera because you gain a lot more value for your money in this situation so a lot of people from my understanding when they usually want to get into film photography they look they come in with a certain budget knowing that they want to not really spend too much money and slr cameras are your best bang for your buck when it comes to having enough manual features to control anything that you need to just like a dslr or a mirrorless camera and the knobs and the features are pretty easy and recognizable very similar to a dslr camera as well too so it's usually the way that i like to navigate new fellow film photographers or creatives in that sense so yeah slr cameras without a doubt so i haven't even gotten to the other topic yet the next one which is film which maybe i'll combine a couple of these tips together um, film speed you know recommended speed film film profiles or characteristics of film and i guess maybe a loading film or exposing it itself so you know now that we've figured out which camera you would like to get, you know, the next topic that I like to get into is film and the types of film. There's so many different types of film still being made today. Granted, there's less variety now than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. There used to be so many different film stocks and speeds and color and black and white. But the way how companies are nowadays, they've been pulling back and they've been simplifying films. But in the sense of simplifying it they've been making it more flexible as well too we're getting into the next recommendation is the type of film so film has speed and speed is essentially 
similar to ISL to keep things rather simple. So if you know photography on your camera itself, there's ISO and ISO is simply the sensitivity of which light hits onto your sensor in order to capture the image. Before digital photography, film only had film speed or in that case, ASA. And what you see, the number on that box or on the film was the quote-unquote ISO of that film, the sensitivity to light that's able to capture an image. So films are getting more and more modern these days, and some of the formulas have slightly changed, like I said, to make things a little bit more convenient depending on how you shoot. And this is the case I always recommend 400-speed film if you're going to start off with photography. Personally, for me, I love black and white film, but there's color film and there's color positive slide film. So you do want to make sure that depending on which color or black and white film that you go with, that you want to do just a little bit more research to see what type of film that it is. Because you have to keep in mind that film has a certain characteristic, a certain film look, grain, sharpness, flexibility, or tonality. And that's the part of the creative process as a film photographer to understand that what film you actually pick, you're already essentially creating a certain look or style based on that film and the way that you expose it and then develop it. So I personally love black and white film. Color film is also another option as well too, but 400 speed film, the two films I would definitely recommend is Ilford HP5+, Plus, which is 400 speed film again, and then you have Kodak T-Max 400 speed film. Now, if you want to do color film, I would probably recommend Kodak Portra 400 speed film. It's it's all these 400 speed films are very very flexible. So if you make a little bit of a mistake as far as your exposure goes, if you make something a little too bright, a little too dark, you can kind of fix that in post if you ended up scanning your film to make it digital. So 400 speed film is the way to go personally for me and me being such an advocate for black and white film, I always recommend black and white film. And I think to make things rather easy, I would just say, hey, go with HP5+. Plus. Now, granted, you know, because I'm just recommending this film for anyone that's listening to this podcast that wants to get into photography, film photography, there's other films out there too, like I just mentioned. There's, you know, I only mentioned three, but there's other films that have slower speed, which is a lower ISO, which is typically 160, like Portra 160, which is a color speed film. And then you have color film like Ektar 100, which is even slower. That's 100. There's also some films out there that are 50 speed, which are really hard to find, but Ilford has their own variation of that 50 ASA film. And then you can go to the other end of the spectrum. If you know that you don't have a lot of light or if you're shooting indoors, there's also film out there like Delta 3200 or T-Max 3200. Um, I don't think there's anything 1600 as far as I know now anymore, but I think Portra 800 is still being made, which is still color film. The T-Max and the Ilfer films are black and whites. And you just want to make sure, just like how it is with digital photography, the higher of the ISO that you shoot in, you're going to produce more grain. Granted, like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, just in the sense of comparison sakes, the more modern your camera is today, the less grain that you're actually going to get through those higher ISO films. Most films are capped out to 3200 ISO film and it can go as low as 20, no, well, box speed is about 25 would be the lowest, but you can get as low as like 12 or 5, which is more of a specialty film. But just to keep it simple, it's anywhere from 25 to 3200 speed film. And granted, as 
more modern in the way that the films are being developed as years go. It is getting better. It is more flexible, but the grain is still going to be there. So I knew a handful of photographers that really want to get into film photography, but complain so much about the grain in the film. And I'm like, dude, you got to like embrace the grain. That's just how film is. It's not going to be like digital. So you got to, you know, separate the two. But nonetheless, like I said, film has its looks and that's let's get into that conversation too now. So I typically advise, you know, picking out maybe one or two film stocks and then shooting at that film speed itself. Granted, it's going to cause a little bit of limitations to the way that you shoot and where and when that you actually shoot, but I'm recommending 400 speed film. And I think when you start with film photography, you want to start off with the base ISO film that you're going to use. And I say this because you want to get familiar with the feeling and the look and the tonalities of what that film can actually produce. And then from there, as you develop more of an understanding of that particular film, the way that it actually works, then I would say jump into pushing and pulling your film. That term gets thrown around quite a bit and sometimes that can confuse people, but pulling film is essentially, let's just say 400 speed film is what you're using. Pulling film is shooting at a lower ISO which is going to be about 200 or 100, 250 or 320, you're shooting below the box speed of that film itself. Now, if you push the film, essentially you're needing more light for that film itself. So that's going to be anywhere like 500, 640, 800, 1600, 3200. You're now pushing that film beyond the box speed, which is 400 is what I'm recommending. So depending on how you push and pull your film can have truly affect the characteristics of that film. When you're essentially pulling film going lower in the ISO, you may get a little bit less grain. You may get a little bit less of a contrast. Depending on how you develop now, you may get a little bit less of a contrast. You're not going to get so much of the punch or the natural characteristics of that film itself. Now, if you push film because you need more light, essentially some of the, the areas of which the, the light is not hitting on that film is going to be much darker and then anything else that where light's being hit more on that film is going to be brighter. So things are going to be more contrasty. It's going to get that, it's going to give you more of a punch, more, more grain, more grit, as I would say. So all this comes into play as far as how you would like to achieve this look in your final image. And like I said, all this has to do with just exposing your film. This has nothing to do as far as developing and also scanning because this can also affect the way that you can produce your final image itself. So just to make things rather easy, just so you are not skewed with the way that the film is produced or behaved in certain situations, I always like to start off with like the baseline, you know, go by the books, go by the rules. And once you start knowing the rules to play that game, then you can start breaking the rules and then you can start getting more creative and seeing how things work with the camera, with the lens, with the film and then exposing it and then developing it. And then you can start building that library of that information. And then you can be more knowledgeable in that sense of taking photos. So it's really, really fun. And I really, I always like to encourage people to do that, but you know, film photography just takes time. And that's like that one thing that you just can't rush in the process is time with photography. There's just time when it comes to developing, taking photos, learning the process, knowing the materials, how, you know, load the camera, how to print your negatives as well too. There's there's this process, that time that you just can't really escape from as you would probably with like the digital 
format or the digital medium in that case. So I think I covered quite a bit as far as film characteristics and understanding that and exposing film itself. Uh, let's see what else that I can talk about too. I'll talk about just a little bit here, but developing film. So if you're starting off with photography, with film photography, a lot of the questions that people would ask is, well, you know, what should I do? Should I develop at home? Should I send it off to a lab? I think really the best answer to that question is, is depending on how serious you're going to be with film photography in this process. You know, you can go so many ways when it comes to shooting film. You know, there's a lot of people that just want to have it as maybe like a side hustle or just want to get into the full process of film photography itself, which then I would say, you know what, you should essentially then start learning how to develop your own film. Maybe in the beginning, you could send off to a lab just to see how things work because you want to try to eliminate as many mistakes as possible just so you can be encouraged to shoot more and get more of an understanding of how things work because there's just a lot of pieces to the puzzle that could be crazy or chaotic and it can mess things up and you know one little thing in the piece of the puzzle can ruin something else or even ruin the whole negative in itself, which has happened to me still to this day. But without a doubt, you know, Depending on how serious you are with photography, I would then say like, yes, maybe eventually do develop your own film at home or send off to a lab. Developing at home would be more cost effective. If you shoot more film or at least bulks of rolls of film, then I would say developing at home can be fun. Depending on the type of developing system that you have at home, you can keep it very simple with like a Patterson tank or you can go as extreme as having your own developing machine and um, chemistry of that nature and then going on from there. So like I said, it really goes back to knowing what you want to do and if you really want to learn the creative process. For me personally, I always encourage people to embrace the whole process of film photography in itself and that's including taking the photos, developing it, and then printing it in a dark room. But in this case, you know, the resources and reliability is very, very hard to find in this day and age, and not everyone actually has that accessibility. So it's very, very hard to do that kind of a thing. But at the end of the day, you know, I think it's just a nice and awesome experience to have maybe a handful of times or even once. You know, if you don't want to develop your own film at home or even print at home, you know, hopefully you can probably find a local darkroom studio and seeing if they have something that's accessible. Like I said, 35 millimeter is pretty accessible. There's a lot of enlargers and there's a lot of tools and items that are just easy, easily available for 35 millimeter. It's a, little, it's a little bit trickier for maybe 120 or even a large format, but having a studio that can provide something like that just to say, hey, I've done it once in my lifetime. I think it's a very good experience to add on to your trade or the craft that you do. It always enhances the outward expression of what you're going to create. So yes, you know, there's times where um, it may not be as accessible or reliable in this day and age, but if you can maybe find one time a dark room or a studio that provides that kind of service where you then can learn that process, I think it just enhances and and gives you that new refreshed look of, of photography and also that appreciation as well too because once you learn more about film photography or at least having some sort of aspect or perspective of it, it can reflect and give you that different perspective on, on digital photography. It may give you a different idea of maybe how to edit photos, maybe how to create your shadows and your highlights a little bit differently or your mid-tones or maybe adding grain to your photos a little bit differently than you would you know, maybe finding from like a certain preset or something like that. But I know people may flack for me for this, you know, as far as 
learning something new from something old. But I think, you know, as long as you've done it maybe once or twice, if it's something that you may want to do, I would encourage it. But for some people, this process is just, you know, somewhat of a dying art. And I still think there's something very, very beautiful in the process as much as it takes a lot of time and resources to create an actual image. But the look and feel for it is definitely different. And it's something that I do want to encourage more people if they really want to do it. But let's jump into a couple more topics that I want to address, and it is a light meter. So light meter, it is a device that helps you get your exposure. Now, you know, cameras today, mirrorless and DS- DSLR cameras have built-in light meters. So they're essentially, you know, giving you the exposure or the metering that you need in order to create the correct the quote-unquote correct exposure for your image. But cameras back in the day sometimes did not have that internal reading. So they would have a device called a light meter. So if you're starting off with film photography, that's one thing I do address and that is a light meter. You want to be sure to actually research and find a decent light meter in order to get the exposure that you need because you don't have a digital screen on the back of your camera to see if your images come out correctly. So it is something that you do want to research and find is actually a light meter. and There's different brands out there as far as light meters go, but the one that are usually very popular is the Sekonic light meters. Personally, for me, I have the Sekonic L358. I think that was one of my first or second light meters that I purchased, and I still use it to this day. It's been probably about seven or eight years now that I've been using this light meter, and it's a very simple to-the-point light meter that gives me my exposure that I need and also gives me the exposures that I need if I end up using strobes um, for in-studio photo shoots. So without a doubt, I would definitely look into your light meters. There's some of them that give you your ambience, your flash, and other kind of settings, but without a doubt, a light meter is definitely a tool that you want to have in your camera bag if you're going to do analog photography, especially for the first time. And you do just want to be familiar as far as when you push the the light meter, as long as you have all your settings correctly, like having it set to daylight or natural light, having the dome either recessed or have it protruding outwards, and then having your ISO set correctly, it's going to give you your shutter speed and your f-stop for what you need to input into your camera. Because you have to keep in mind that most cameras that I did suggest are all pretty much manual cameras. And you have to input that value into the camera in order for you to get the proper exposure. So if you start, you know, throwing some numbers and putting, you know, different f-stops and shutter speeds together, you can get some ineffective photos or even no photos in that case. So just want to keep that in mind. Now, this one is not to say it's a little far-fetched, but something that I want to include into this podcast as far as film. We're going back into film and that is new or expired film? Which one should I get? Now, you know, for the sake of this episode and for people that are wanting to get their feet wet with photography, I would definitely go to the approach of buying new film because you want to eliminate any errors as much as possible. You know, when it comes to buying film cameras, which is something I'll talk about next actually, because it kind of falls in the same category, but you want to be sure that when you're buying film, You want to buy something that's new because you know it's fresh, it's stored properly, the quality is going to be there. Granted, if you buy expired film, you you are taking the risk as far as it being stored properly, 
being how old it is, you have to compensate for the exposure, which is not something we'll get into right now. And if someone hasn't properly stored that film, it's going to create certain effects or not even create an image at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter how properly correct you expose the image right in through your camera ends or developing your film correctly too. So without a doubt, I definitely recommend going with new film. You can buy it off usually B&H Photo, Adorama, you could go to the extent of eBay, but that can be a little sketch here and there if you're not too familiar with eBay. Um, you can do Amazon. Amazon is another place that you can buy film. Granted, I think film is usually a little bit more expensive on Amazon than it is through B&H or Adorama, but definitely do your research too. I would also recommend doing your research to see if there's any local shops. I know personally for me, if I'm in a pinch, that I can go to two or three local darkroom areas in my state to make sure that I can get film if I need it, like I said, in a pinch. But without a doubt, I have film stored in my house in a fridge. And that's another thing to talk about as well too. That's another question that people talk about is storing film. So usually when you buy a new film, you want to put it in a dark room, something that's not too hot. I guess if it's cold, it's okay. Room temperature or even air conditioning rooms that are not really lit is a good place to store film. If film is expired, if you do end up going with expired film, depending on how old the film is based on its expiration, you either can put it in the fridge or you can store it in the freezer. But like I said, going with new film, as long as you are going to expose it, you know, within the week of buying it or something like that, or in a, in a couple weeks, you know, as long as it's stored in a air conditioned, kind of a dark or shaded place, you're usually fine as far as storing your film there. So we got those two out of the way. Let's jump back into buying cameras because that can be a tricky conversation as well too. Out, not a tricky conversation. It could be a tricky thing to navigate as far as seeing if you can find a local place to see if they sell cameras that they actually tested knowing that they're fully functional. The other place that you can find film cameras would be, like I said, eBay. And usually the best thing that you can do is look at all the images. The more images that they have, the better for you. You want to check for like the foam seals and, you know, making sure like the lens and things are proper or working uh, properly. When you're looking on eBay, you want to pay attention to the condition of the camera. One of the big telltelling signs sometimes are the condition of the camera, the way that it looks, and then also the description. The more images that you have, the better it is for you to check and evaluate and making sure the camera looks clean, it looks like it's functioning right. The more descriptive the the listing is, is also a big, huge plus. There's some cameras that you can buy internationally, for example, like Japan or Hong Kong for, for all that matters. And they usually would have like descriptions as far as like the condition, if it's excellent, if it's good, if it's bad. They'll list if there's, you know, fungus. If there's fungus in the lens, that's not something that you would want to buy. Um, they'll sometimes also disclose, that depending on eBay sellers, you know, if a light meter is not working properly or if it's like the built-in light meter in the camera is not working properly or if a shutter is sticky or if it's slow, those those words or those terminologies are just little red flags. Is not something that you would want to go with. You want to see, you know, cameras are maybe that are like 80 to 100% cosmetically good grade cameras. You want to see things in the listings, for example, that are fully functional, that's been tested, 
Also, you want to check for places as well, too, that offer returns. If there's something that's wrong with the camera, even though they listed everything that's correct, you know, make sure that you're able to return the camera. So there's just those things that you just want to pay attention to as far as buying cameras. Typically, for me personally, I buy things online. There's not a lot of stuff locally that I check to see if there's something that's good. You can possibly check for thrift stores as well, too. That's another one that you can find some nice little golden nuggets you know, you can find some cameras there. Granted, they don't test cameras there, but typically you can find maybe a camera there. It's going to be for a fraction of a price and you can kind of take the risk if you want to. Or you can ask for any of your friends that are into photography, film photography. They may have an extra camera and they might be nice enough for you to lend you the camera. Or the other thing you could do too is ask your family members, like your parents and see if for example they may have a camera that they've been um, that they've used when back in their day of high school or college and they may have it sitting around somewhere and they're more than willing to let you use it so there's a lot of options out there you can definitely do your research you can check locally through thrift stores you can check um like i said with your family members friends family so there's just a lot of options out there as far as buying cameras so I think that almost covers everything for this episode. Like I said, just to recap everything, as far as getting your feet wet with film photography, like I said, there's a lot of options out there. Don't get too overwhelmed as far as picking out the first camera in the film. Typically, like I said, you just want to dive into it, but do it smartly as well too. You know, make sure you do your research, you know, look at maybe the top or the best cameras, 35 millimeter cameras for beginners. There's a lot of blogs and tips and videos on that stuff. The ones that I listed are pretty common. And also you want to research a little bit for films that you may want to pick if you want to go with the black and white route, if you want to go with the color route. And um, you can also look up on Google for that too or under Flickr or other sites where you can type in the certain film stocks and then do film examples and there'll be a lot of examples of what film looks like and can give you an idea. And then once you figure out those two combinations there, you know, shoot at box speed just to make sure everything is working just fine with your camera. That's one of the things too that you do want to test right away is um, making sure that your camera is working just fine. And, you know, just as another reminder as well too, is to, you know, take the time to read the manual to your camera or watch a bunch of YouTube videos about your specific camera that you're going to get just so you can get the understanding of how to load the film into the camera to how to advance the film until you're at frame number one. You want to also, you know, for example, make sure that your film is slightly tightened as well too from the rewind knob in most of these cameras. So having a flat negative as you're taking photos helps you create sharper images and, and, and also focused images as well too. And then other things you want to pay attention to is knowing how to like rewind your camera, knowing where the aperture is on your lens. In this case, most cameras now in those days were mostly the aperture is on the lens. The shutter speed is on the body, making sure, for example, like setting the ISO on your, on your camera itself. So you want to invest a lot of time to understanding your camera and that will help you alleviate any issues or mistakes that you may come up with. And then afterwards, like I said, you know, once you start figuring out the film that you want to start off with, give it a couple, you know, buy a couple of rolls and give it a shot to see how it looks at box speed and then venture out into pushing and pulling film and making sure like you record those things because if you do end up sending it to a lab, you do want to let them know like, hey, I shot my roll film at 200 ISO, please develop it at this speed or maybe develop it at box speed and you can see like the difference between how the images come out depending on how you expose it. So, 
really, really encourage you guys just to jump right in. I know a lot of people get discouraged in any way, shape, or form, and I can sense it. I can see it. And that's like I said, for a very first episode of this podcast, hopefully this clarified some things about it. But once you get those photos back and you got a couple frames that are looking very nice, trust me, you'll get like the film bug bite and you would just want to shoot more film. And then once you know about medium format and large format photography and you get to see those negatives, it just, you know, it's just, it creates a whole new appreciation for photography. At least that's how I looked at it when I got into film photography back in high school and then switching to digital for a while and then wanting to create that film look and then once I got into film photography and got used to shooting 35 millimeter again and then jumped into medium format large format because I didn't have that in high school or I haven't even personally experienced it when I got to that point and once I did you know medium format for me is like the bread and butter as far as my photography goes and then the large format is just the icing on the cake you know Oof, you know, the 4x5 or the 8x10 sheet film negatives are amazing when you get the right exposure. I'm telling you guys, you're you're missing out on a lot when it comes to film photography if you haven't gotten into it. So start off with this format. Start off with some of these processes. Again, if you have any questions or concerns, you can email me at toganlog at gmail.com or dk at dkimg.com. Well, there you go, guys. This is the very first episode, you know, getting your feet wet with film photography and what to look out for in terms of buying your first camera, your film, your light meter, and anything else in the mix of just taking photos. But without a doubt, thanks for watching. And until next time, episode number two.